Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Discomfort Zone podcast. My name is Olev and uh, everything you hear in this show is entirely my own opinion and doesn't represent MSP Waves or anyone else. This week uh, is a continuation from last week which is a bit of an introduction and overview of what's going to happen. And so let's jump right into it. I've got a lot to get through this week and we'll see, uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, as always, it's great to see in chat, Rondon, thank you. And Revised Sociology, great to see you again. Alien Honey, thank you for joining. Okay, let's get started. So this week's episode, I want to start with the story of the platypus. Uh, to be exact, the duck-billed platypus. Now... I was fascinated by this animal when I was a younger child and I wrote a paper in school. We had to write a paper about an animal and I think most of the kids wrote about, you know, dogs and cats, maybe a horse. And I was just completely enamored with this uh, creature. For those who don't know, uh, the duck-billed platypus is an Australian animal. It's one of only two, if I'm not mistaken, mammals who lay eggs and it's an amazing mishmash. It's got the bill of a duck, the fur coat of an otter, uh, webbed feet like a duck. Um, it actually senses electrical impulses in its bill. Um, it can dive underwater. It can't breathe underwater, but it dives and it uh, has these flaps that close its eyes and it so it dives blind and senses with its bill uh, its prey. So it's a, it's a really fascinating animal. Now, the reason I start by telling you all this is that in the 1800, um, when this animal first came to European uh, biologists and they first examined it, they thought it was a hoax. Now, this was pretty common at the time and there had been all sorts of different animals and I think a lot of large animals that had been sort of uh, sent as fakes to try and whatever gain. Uh, the money or fame, etc. And so it's understandable. And yet this creature appeared, which was so bizarre and uh, looks made up that they believed it to be a hoax and they believed that it wasn't, wasn't natural. And I think there's something very important in that story that we can learn. And that is the famous adage that uh, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And I think it's with this notion that I would like to take you on a journey, a narrative journey. Um, I wouldn't say that what I talk about here is the absolute truth, even if uh, I did believe in such a thing. But I think that we have a lot to learn from stories. And everything that we sort of tell ourselves, believe in, etc., etc., is a certain narrative that we shape based on our experiences. And so I'd like to share this narrative with you, which at times may seem stranger than fiction, um, but I think we have a lot to learn from studying, studying these subjects very, very closely. And so the second notion which sort of follows from this that I'd like to talk about actually talks, uh, stems from two uh, different words, misinformation and disinformation. 
And misinformation means any information that is incorrect or misleading, um, any mistake, etc. And disinformation is the purposeful um, spreading of misinformation in order to affect and to uh, change public opinion. Uh, the phrase was actually coined first uh, by the KGB, and I think Stalin uh, was the first one to use it, and he was describing it as propaganda that the US was spreading, and uh, the examples that he was giving of what the US was doing were these lies that he was trying to uh, make people believe that the US was an evil place and Russia was amazing. And I don't think that's the first time that that method has been used. That was the first time that the word disinformation was coined. But any leader in history and any um, deception that was carried out in order to control the population was in fact disinformation. So this practice is a, certainly a very, very old one and one that is all too common, I think, in politics uh, and forever has been. Um, it seems that there is this sort of excuse, this guise, this tale that we're told that in order to protect the public, the masses of people, uh, in order to stop from chaos and spreading uh, panic, um, it's necessary to lie to the public, to mislead the public, to conceal information from the public. And so although this is uh, deemed as something that is honorable and even legal, it is still by definition disinformation. And the big problem with disinformation is that as, as humans, we generally tend to accept the first information we come across. And any following information that objects to it, we normally have a tendency to mistrust. Uh, this is more intuitively than rationally. And so even if the truth will be later discovered, it's still much easier for people to hold on to older lies than to accept new truths. And I think this also stems from uh, how young we are when we receive this information. And so obviously with children, I've, it's, I remember clearly a conversation that I had um, with, I think he was about three or four. I can't remember the exact notion, what was, what was said, but the, I was arguing with him, not arguing, <laughs> but we were discussing, I can't remember exactly what, uh, where rain comes from or how food, I can't remember, but something very, very simple. And he, was, uh, he wasn't agreeing with me. And even though I was an adult and obviously knew better, that meant nothing because he had heard from someone else first uh, something else, whether this was a joke, an older brother told him, or something that someone else thought. I wish I remember the example. I apologize. But it was something very, very basic, you know, like if it rains from the sky or I don't know. And it really stuck with me, that notion that it doesn't matter how right I am and how obvious it is to me. It doesn't matter the truth because for this child, I'm challenging their pre-existing belief. Even if their belief is only a year old or however long it was, still it's so ingrained that it becomes much, much harder to let go of that initial uh, information, whether it was truthful or not. And I personally experienced this many times. In fact, I, I continue to experience this in my life and uh, rediscover or 
discover for the first time things that I held to be true about myself, about my environment, that I uh, come across new information in a different light that uh, shows a different picture. And I think these can be rather subtle and they can be very devastating at times. And so, although uh, it is with some trepidation that I uh, encroach upon these subjects and talk about things that are, at the very least, uh, uncomfortable, I feel that it is important and that the truth, even if it is uh, later to the party, um, is certainly more important for us to hear. So, I'd like you to remember that just because what I'm saying is completely different to what you've heard, doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, false. So let's jump right into it, shall we? Um, the first subject that I'd like to talk about in the first place that I feel we should begin is with evolution. Now, evolution is a very interesting and complex process or phenomenon that takes place. And it's one of those things that we've all heard about, but few of us, uh, I think, have studied in an academic level. And it's a process that appears um, with very, in very, very different areas and with different species in different ways. And we can see the process of evolution um, on different time scales. And so I think it's something that we sort of hear about a lot, but it's a lot of numbers. It's a lot of ancient history, and it's sort of hard to grasp. And I certainly... I'm no expert or even, uh, you know, very well versed in evolution, but there are other people who are. And to a certain degree, obviously, archaeologists are, but a lot of uh, Sitchin's book, whom I mentioned last week, um, a lot of his books, I should say, refer to archaeology and precise dating and numbers. And it's a very important part to start piecing together this puzzle. And so I'd like to throw some statistics at you. And later on, I'm going to actually up, uh, upload a chat, a quick quote from uh, Sitchin's book. But for now, we'll talk a little bit about human evolution. And so we all know that evolution takes a long, long time. In fact, it takes millions and millions of years uh, for certain species to develop. And for our species, for whatever, wherever you want to start counting, uh, it was a long, long time of very, very little progress. And then, uh, let's say around 2 million years ago, we get the first real sort of uh, Homo sapiens who are similar to uh, in structure to what we are. And that starts the process that leads eventually to the, uh, the Cro-Magnon and... This takes place over a few hundred thousand years. And so we have this dramatic increase um, in speed of evolution from millions of years to a few hundred thousand years. And that seems to be a very uh, distinct uh, period of time. And this is obviously something that has been talked about in different theories in evolution. And the general consensus is that there have been different hypotheses offered for why this has happened, but it's a natural evolution. And the different time scale is simply something that we see happening uh, with the human evolution. But this, I feel, um, there seems to be a lot going on, because if we look forward in time, we see that 
the Cro-Magnons appear around 35,000 years ago, and they, they are the ones who sort of uh, wipe out the Neanderthals, the other competing humans. Now they've discovered that there were different sub-groups uh, of humans as well. And these Cro-Magnons seem to sort of spread and flourish and take over. Obviously not in any kind of numbers that we see today, but relative to the time. And then they seem to be working with these stone tools for about 25,000 years. And this is all what's uh, accepted uh, theory today with the theory of evolution of man and the uh, evolution of society of civilizations and then 10,000 years ago we get this sort of amazing increase till we reach today's technology. Now when you think about these numbers and you compare them from millions of years for the different uh, organs of our body and the different primates to appear and the different apes until the first humans, the first homo sapiens who are very close to who we are today and then this incredible increase in speed. And this has been something that's been curious for a lot of researchers. And so I would like to talk about the theory that Sitchin poses in his book. And this theory is obviously uh, quite, I think, un un uncommon, unpopular, and rather uh, extreme. But um, there is a problem with the current theory of human evolution and it's not a problem that's been adequately addressed because people don't know and these things are very hard to prove and yet there seems to be a lot of weight to what Sitchin is proposing and I hope to uh, to show some of it here. Um, I do want to say before I continue that if you haven't read his stuff or anything if you want the actual numbers and all of the dates and figures and all of the scientific backing up information you really have to go to him and to his sources because i'm a not equipped to uh, to deal with all that and b that's not what this show is about i would like to think of this more as as i said a narrative i will give some facts and figures where i can but basically um if you want to get the full scientific backing up uh, theory, then I uh, suggest you read his book, which I don't think I mentioned the name, so I'll say it's by Zachariah Sitchin. The first book is called The Twelfth Planet, and that's where he sort of introduces his whole theory, which we'll be talking about. He then went on to write, I think, six other books um, in total in that series, and that was sort of spreading out the human evolution from the beginning, from 500,000 years ago all the way to... Uh, present day. So we have this gap in the human evolution and something seems to have happened to accelerate all of this. Now whether as some theories pose it was the discovery of fire and cooking and increased caloric intake or uh, throwing a spear and having the hand-eye coordination increase the uh, mental capacity it seems that all of these theories aren't quite enough to explain this huge leap forward. And so before I go any further with what Sitchin proposes, I'd like to sort of uh, continue with this thought experiment. Now, I think it's time that I mention something that I came across uh, quite long ago in school, 
And that's the term Occam's razor. For those who've studied uh, philosophy, I think it's actually used in other places, but I'll explain very quickly. Occam was a Scottish philosopher, if I'm not mistaken, and he invented this term, Occam's razor, which means the simplest explanation is most likely to be the correct. And so if you are trying to explain something that's happening, let's say a natural occurrence, the more elements you need in order to explain it, the more complex your theory is, uh, probably the further away from the truth you're getting. And Einstein mentioned this or, or spoke a little bit about this, saying that if you truly understand a concept, you should be able to explain it to a child. Or if you can't explain this concept to a child, then you don't truly understand it. There seems to be something about this that Although our universe and our reality and our natural environment is this amazing, complex, interconnected web of variables, there are still these very, very, very simple patterns uh, that seem to be governing or at least expressing them uh, in, in very simple terms. And if you're not hitting that mark, if your explanation is not simple enough, you're not going to be grasping enough of the picture. And so this is, for me personally, this has been a very, very important tool in being able to discern truth from fiction as best I can, because often we come across these very elaborate, very enticing, very interesting uh, explanations, and yet um, they can very often lead us further and further away from a very, very simple truth that could be staring us in the face. I think there are many, many examples of these, but uh, we'll, we'll continue for now on point. But it's, it's an interesting subject. So Occam's razor uh, encourages us to look for the simplest solution. Now, in my mind, um, I've mentioned Go once before. I will probably mention it a few times again. You don't have to know it, but there is a set of um, sort of sentences that can guide you in the game of Go. And they seem to be often, uh, some of them seem to be applicable to life. And one of them is that you want your pieces, your stones, to do more than one thing, preferably two and three is better. So the more things you can do uh, with a single action, the more the useful it is and the better it is in general. And it seems to be the same with theories. If your theory is using one unified element to explain multiple different uh, occurrences or phenomenons, then if, if you can show that that's what's happening and they're interconnected, that's a very strong piece of evidence to encourage it because the explanation has become even more simple. It's actually one thing explaining three different phenomenons. And so with uh, this conundrum that we have of human evolution, it would be very enticing if we could find a single explanation for both the increased uh, evolution of human beings uh, leading up to the Cro-Magnons and then uh, also explain the explosion of civilization that we see. And I believe that the theory actually goes a good way of explaining both of those. And so... We seem to have this story that's told of the process of evolution. 
And I'm going to be now specifically talking about the last 10,000 years. And so more or less, obviously, I'm rounding up numbers. And if you want the specifics, you please go and research this because I'm trying to be as accurate as possible, but uh, entertaining at the same time. So we'll use rounded numbers. And uh, for anyone who wants the exact, you should go and uh, check it out. Oh, nice. Etiquette. Thanks. It's the, thanks for the picture. Um, so we seem to have this story of evolution, which is a linear story, meaning human beings began 10,000 years ago at rock bottom, and they slowly but surely developed and increased and discovered uh, new discoveries until it sort of speeds up in the last however many you want. And so it's this story that we started at the bottom and we climbed our way to the top which is a very common theme. Um, we see it all the time and we see this process of growing from something small to something bigger, so it makes a lot of sense. However, we do see that there is this gap where for 25,000 years, uh, in terms of the archaeological findings, we don't see any progress at all. And then suddenly in this 10,000 years, uh, there is this leap forward. So although it explains, this linear process explains each of those separately, when you try looking at the bigger picture and you see the numbers together, it seems to not be quite uh, fitting what we are finding in reality. And so for this, we really have to go to theories that have actually been uncovered over the past few uh, decades. And so although there were many people who hypothesized about these things, um, the actual physical archaeological evidence weren't found yet. And over the last few decades, there have been some major, major findings and digs uh, around ancient history. And a lot of these theories and hypotheses are being corroborated with evidence. So it's a very exciting time. And nowadays, there is complete agreement around the fact that there was a flood around uh, 10 to 12,000 years ago, the end of the last ice age. And this was obviously spoken about both in the Bible and in various religious texts and historical texts from around the world, from different cultures. But it was always considered a myth, and it was considered something that for some reason was invented, but there was no physical evidence pointing to a flood until they started finding the physical evidence. And so that started this sort of shift, which Sitchin talks about a lot in his book, where all of these ancient mystical, mythical texts were suddenly being corroborated with archaeological evidence. And... This was a bit of a problem for some people. And I don't want to go into this too much because it's really not the subject that I want to focus on. But it is important for those of you who don't know that in academia, over the, the world, and this is really if you ask people in high places, the archaeological departments of the big universities are very, very, let's say, um, they are controlled by the worldview and if there is an archaeological find that is too upsetting for 
the current model, whatever that may be, whether religious or political, um, it is actually not disclosed and it can be even buried. So this is not something that I've uh, personally experienced, but from the people I've met who have experienced it and from many whistleblowers who have come out and people uh, t telling their stories of how they were exposed to this, this is something that's worldwide. And archaeological findings are obviously one of the most damning pieces of evidence um, because they're really the only hard proof that we have from that time. And so this brings us to this question of, well, we have the artifacts, we have the stone tools showing what man was doing back then, and then we have the artifacts showing, you know, the different ages and the Bronze Age, and we can really trace the linear progression. So what's the problem? The problem is the, the Great Flood. And the Great Flood was, uh, I think in English in the Bible, it's referred to as the Deluge. Um, the Great Flood wasn't just 40 days and 40 nights of rain, but it was actually huge uh, ice caps, sheets of ice, uh, kilometers long, that were broken loose and traveling around the globe, uh, floating around, and as they came up on land, crushing uh, everything that was underneath them. And these were very cataclysmic times. We really have no perception of how dangerous the earth was back then and how peaceful it is now. And these massive sheets of ice that were traveling around the globe were basically eradicating um, all evidence and memories of the existing cultures if there were. And so we see that the disasters that had happened then, if we compare them to today, if they were to happen now, our civilization would be wiped without any evidence showing. Not talking about our digital footprint, etc., but all of the buildings and what we see whenever these small, uh, relatively small natural disasters like a tsunami or a hurricane hit, it can absolutely decimate. Well, these are several orders of magnitude larger than that. Um, excuse me. Sorry. So we see a picture where there is this period of time, which we call the deluge, the great flood. And before this, we have no physical evidence uh, that can tell us what was there because anything that was will have been crushed. Maybe if we have a few pieces of evidence, and we'll get into this later, they could be very large stone structures that could survive uh, such harsh conditions. And uh, we'll see that we actually have a few of those left around the world. But for now, I want to talk about a very important period. And this is where I, our story really starts both in my uh, podcast and for humanity. And that's the first civilization that we uh, accept, uh, according to archaeological digs, that rose um, really out of nowhere after the deluge. And this, for anyone who hasn't heard or doesn't know, um, is called the Sumerian culture. Um, from what I understand, that's a mispronunciation, a mistranslation, and it's supposed to be Shumer, Shumer. Um, in Hebrew, in the Bible, this uh, uh, civilization, this city, is called Shin'al. And so we can see how it's already changing from uh, culture from culture, from culture to culture and language to language. 
But this was con this is considered the first civilization um, that we see of man. And it's very interesting that this civilization both seems to appear out of nowhere and very, very quickly seems to acquire very advanced techniques and methods for city uh, management um, from the earliest forms of writing and trade and currency and a whole system that seems to arise very, very quickly. So in terms of that human evolution and the cultural evolution, we again have this inexplicable jump forward. And if you've never heard of this, if you've never uh, studied any of this history, then I implore you to go and look it up yourself because it's quite fascinating. When I first came across the Sumerian culture, I was really, really surprised that we didn't learn more about it in school and in history. And obviously, well, there's two reasons. The given reason, one, which is we don't know much about them. But I think more importantly is that the questions that they leave are very uncomfortable questions. Those are questions that are very hard to answer with the current model. And so the Sumerian culture, in my mind, is a very important uh, gateway between us and recorded history, literally recorded on clay tablets, and the past, the, our ancient history that we have no access to. And there, is these, there are these two periods, before and after the deluge, called antediluvian and post-diluvian. And we have no recorded history of any of the antediluvian cultures. So how do we know about them? How would we know about them? What possible way could we have to find out about this prehistory uh, antediluvian time? And the only answer that I can come across uh, that will accept, let's say, is the cultures that were there right after the deluge, the Sumerian culture. So what do the Sumerians say? Do they talk about former cultures, uh, ones that were before? Do they talk about how they received, uh, not received, sorry, they developed their cities? Um, and as a matter of fact, yes, as all cultures uh, seem to have a tendency to do, the Sumerians also wanted to preserve themselves historically. Clay tablets, for that matter, are an excellent um, piece, certainly a lot more than digital media or even paper. And they have survived uh, 8,000, 6,000 years till today when they were uncovered around, I think it was about three or four decades ago. And that was the first time that Western civilization came across the writings of what we claim to be the first civilization that was around 6,000 years ago. Now, what's interesting is that despite these discoveries were made, the general ideas and hypotheses and theories about the evolution of culture didn't really seem to change all that much. And even though we have this culture spring out of seemingly nowhere, um, I don't know, it didn't raise enough eyebrows in my mind. And it's interesting because the theory that was before was really centered around ancient Egypt. And ancient Egypt seemed to be the cradle of civilization, the place where it all started. But the Egyptians spoke about this earlier civilization of Sumerian. And 
although we because we had no physical evidence and we hadn't found the artifacts no one sort of believed it it was considered myth or they were talking about gods or whatever but as a matter of fact years later we have discovered the sumerian culture and here we face the same dilemma again the sumerian culture telling us explicitly that they were taught by people who came from an earlier culture that their very writing was given to them from a pre-existing uh, form of writing and their uh, descriptions of it are obviously what we consider very very mythical and so as uh, as always is the case um, it seems to be that we again consider it to be simple myth or fiction or something that they told for whatever reason because we're lacking the physical evidence from a world that was before the great flood and so if you're with me so far i think you can start to see uh, where we're going with this and that is the big question of whether or not there could have or did exist an ancient civilization um, that was more advanced than we considered possible until now um, oh hey anticom sorry i'm not entirely on chat hey anticom blood if uh, you have any questions while i'm talking or anything please uh, post i will be more aware of it um so before i continue on with ancient civilizations i just want to mention one name i didn't speak about last week and that is graham hancock if you are in any way uh, aware of ancient civilizations and the theory you'll probably have heard his name i think he's one of if not the leading uh, researcher on the subject and although I have studied his, uh, his books and, and, and read up on what he's said, I, um, I feel that his job is slightly different from what interests me. And his work really is centered around the scientific proof that there was an ancient civilization that was advanced. Who they were, what they were doing, why... Uh, are questions that he doesn't avoid personally but he avoids them professionally and for good reason I think that his focusing and what he's doing has really helped push this forward and obviously the corroboration of a lot of what he's said has been really amazing to watch but I personally don't talk about his stuff so much because I am more interested in the who what why and when not just if so if you haven't heard about any of this graham hancock is another great name to research uh, if you have we shall continue let's see how we're doing for time okay 11:35. so i'm gonna carry on for a little bit and then we'll talk a little bit about what will be next week so the idea of ancient civilizations is one that has been around for well probably <laughs> for all of recorded history to some extent uh, earlier civilizations, what we term mythical civilizations, seem to be very much in agreement that there were earlier civilizations, and yet they are always or, or mostly uh, non-human to a certain degree, whether they were giants or wise people or enlightened beings or gods or demigods, whatever it may be, all these cultures speak about these fantastical much more advanced civilizations that existed long, long before, um, and that they are uh, sort of descendants or somehow came after, which is a very different 
perception and different theory from the linear line that we were talking about. Um, in fact, the linear line seems to say that once they were worse and now they're better, all of these ancient civilizations agree that there used to be a much more advanced civilization before. Now, there is a question as to why these completely disconnected cultures who hadn't uh, heard of each other, at least as far as we know, why would they agree on these pre-existing civilizations? Well, it seems that all of these stories of creation are surrounding their culture. And although we call them myths of creation, as in every culture has the myth of creation where that's how the world was created, we have to remember that that's because for each of these people who weren't aware of others, their myths of creation would be for all of humanity because they're not aware there's anyone else. But if we look at it uh, more historically, if we were allowed to, we could see them as the quote-unquote myths of the creation of each culture. And when we do that, we start to see certain uh, similarities between all of these different stories. And it's it's a very intriguing uh, area of research that I won't go too much into because, again, it's a little bit off topic. But if you're interested, I highly advise the different uh, stories of creation as beginnings of culture. Uh, South America, North America, China, uh, Asia. Um, these, there's some very interesting stories. <laughs> so, ah, let me just see. I see some people in chat. Um, let's see. Antigone Blood says a lot of what we have now is from the fallen angels who came and had children with our women. Ah, so that's uh, we're we're gonna go right into that and what does it mean, fallen angels, etc., uh, etc. Et um, but I'm glad I'm glad to see that the audience is with me on this. Um, yeah, Rondon. He, if you don't know, he has a Graham Hancock who first released uh, Fingerprints of the Gods, has a new book that's come out, I think, last year, or something called Magicians of the God, which is a continuation in following the discovery of Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, which is the oldest um, discovered uh, human civilization. Um, yeah, no, there are both. It's two books, Fingerprints of the Gods and Magicians of the Gods. So... It seems to be that for anyone who has researched this, I mean, I'm talking about archaeologists, um, there is no escaping the fact that today the evidence shows that there were civilizations who had left imprints on this earth in some way or another um, that were far more impressive than any of our estimates could have been as to what their capabilities were. And so this leads to a change in what we were thinking of. Man started out as, you know, an amoeba and basically fast-tracked it all the way to rocket ships. It seems that at some point, these great civilizations were stopped in their tracks and sort of wiped out to a certain degree. And these cataclysms have obviously halted uh, human progress. And when you think about that, it could have been that humanity has reached uh, nuclear energy and rocket ships uh, time and time again. And then this one massive uh, cataclysmic event like an asteroid hitting or a supervolcano or anything like that wipes everyone back to the Stone Age and we have to sort of start over. 
you know, uh, there's even a famous uh, stand-up bit by Joe Rogan who says, if we actually had to start over, you know, how how far could we get? If the you know people listening to this, if we were all in a room, could we make a phone? Could we make a radio? Could, you know what I mean? Like, if you had to survive and live off food, so it's an interesting theory, and I think that personally, uh, it really seems undeniable that these cataclysmic events happened. And whatever human culture was here before would have been devastated uh, by the event. So who were these ancient civilizations and what were they doing here before uh, Sumeria? Um, the Sumerians speak a lot about what life was like and it goes from very mundane bits of information like trading receipts and marriage uh, uh, recordings um, all the way to poets and astrological discoveries and mathematical systems uh, which are different than ours and seem to be very impressive, especially for 6,000 years ago. So when we ask or when we look to see what the Sumerians say, as we said, they say that all of these systems came from pre-existing cultures that were there before that started the Sumerian culture. Um, okay, let me see. So I think we're going to stop just here for now. We'll see how much time we, we get through. I want to talk a little bit about what's going to be next week. And I'd actually uh, enjoy hearing from the chat um, what you think about the direction. Because basically, okay, we have a story of evolution here that starts two million years ago. And all of the focus and attention has been on the last 10,000 years. And the reason for that is because that's more or less, you know, the recorded history, the artifacts that we've found. The Sumerian culture was 6,000 years ago. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to start by talking more about the Sumerian culture, what they say, and all of Sitchin's work. And through that, we're going to discover the ancient history that came before, so through the eyes of the Sumerian culture. Um, that isn't chronologically how it happened, and that's sort of, uh, I think, something... I, I really like chronology because it helps build the linear line and helps me understand it, but I feel that historically it's more accurate to receive this information the way it comes because we're not going through records of ancient history of these cultures. We're going through the records of a culture that came uh, thousands of years after. So I'm going to talk a little bit with a few minutes I have before we finish. Ah, let me just check chat and see. Oh, uh, ah, Assassin's Creed. That's <laughs> I, I never played the game. Is that the from the film, the quote, or from the game? Uh, the first civilization was a long-living race who created as humans as a subservient race. It's we yeah 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 absolutely. This is um this is what we're going to get into. Ah, you know what? I completely forgot in all of this to put up the Sitchin quote that I wanted to. So I'm going to put that up now, although it's a little bit after, but um it's still relevant. And you know what? You can read this uh in your own time. Um I'll have it in chat for the video as well. But it basically goes through the human evolution leading up to the uh, Cro-Magnons. 
And oh, wrong chat. Thank you so much, uh, Rondon. <laughs> You're the only one who saw that. Sorry, hang on. Let me just get. I'm doing it on my phone now. So uh, there. Okay. Thank you. So that's there. And you can look at the numbers to sort of get a scale of what we were talking about before. So next week, I'm going to be talking more about the Sumerian culture and specifically uh, Sitchin's translations. And so I mentioned a little bit. In fact, ah, I wanted to correct something as well that I said last week about Sitchin, which was that he had uh, studied in university. Um, he hadn't actually uh, gone to university for these subjects, which in hindsight makes a lot of sense. Uh, he probably couldn't uh, offer these hypotheses under any uh, professor. Um, but he would join um, the different archaeologists who were working. What he did do was he studied the ancient uh, Semitic languages. And in that, he seems to be unique, as in he was the only person who could speak Akkadian, Babylonian, ancient Hebrew, uh, and he could read the Sumerian cuneiform. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. Um, and so he was one of the, well, he was the only person who was able to translate through all of these different cultures, uh, the different words and the way they changed and their meaning that was held on and was lost to us over time. And so I really want to go into next week, um, the way that Sitchin studied the Sumerians was completely unique and it's a perspective that isn't really available if you don't have the other Semitic languages under your belt, as it were. And so the Sumerians went into a lot of detail about, as they said, these different subjects and specifically um, astronomy. I think I said astrology before, but uh, actually astronomy. Now, a very interesting fact is that in their depictions of our solar system, um, they show 12 planets. Now, obviously, in our current solar system, we count 12. I'm not sure about the word planet, but uh, including the moon and the sun, we count 11. Um, we normally don't count Earth, so we count 10. But we didn't discover the last outer three, uh, Pluto, uh, Jupiter, and uh, Sorry, not Jupiter. Uh, Uranus. I can't remember the third one. But we didn't discover those until much later. And so when the uh, first tablets were shown with the solar system, people didn't quite know what it was because there were too many planets, as it were. But over time, we kept discovering more and more planets. And each planet that we discovered seemed to correlate to these solar systems that were depicted on clay tablets from 6,000 years ago. So what started out as being a ridiculous theory of how many different planets there are in the system, uh, as our instruments improved, we seem to be finding uh, more and more evidence to support their depiction of the solar system. And so currently we're, <laughs> quote-unquote, missing one uh, planet, according to the Sumerian culture, and... It was a very interesting discovery, and I'm sure exhilarating for Sitchin, when ast um, astrophysicists were discovered 
a mysterious planet, which is called Planet X, if you want to uh, look it up. There's a lot of misinformation and disinformation about the subject, but um, there is this inexplicable uh, object in the sky that could fit the description of the 12th planet. Let's just put it at that. So it's amazing to watch Sitchin go from these theories that really... Um, did make a lot of sense and were supported by evidence, but obviously weren't accepted. And over time, they seem to be uh, gaining more and more uh, verification as opposed to losing ground. So, okay, I can see we're getting close now. Sorry, I'm going uh, drifting off. I don't want to start a new subject yet. Sorry about that, um, because we only have 10 more minutes. So next week, we're going to talk about Sumeria. And through their eyes, the cultures that came before and what actually uh, happened in terms of human evolution. So that's it for me for now. Um, I'm going to go through. Ah, I can see. Thank you so much for the comments in chat, anti army blood. Oh, and uh, crimson clad. Sorry, I just saw you in chat. Thank you very much for joining. Let's see. Growth can change pace based on how many variables are involved. The more we know and the variance in physiology can possibly account for some hikes in growth. But even I wonder if some of our leaps are natural spikes. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It seems to be that there are multiple theories that could explain it. Um, I don't know if anyone here has heard, but there is a very, uh, well, <laughs> among psychedelic circles, there's a famous theory called the stoned ape theory which is a theory that I think was first hypothesized by Terence McKenna. I'm not sure if he actually sort of borrowed some of the idea from someone else. Um, but obviously the idea of dietary uh, affecting, um, the diet affecting the evolutionary process is something that was theorized before. But the stone ape theory basically says that human beings who were around the African plains who had come down from the trees um, were probably eating mushrooms, as we see apes doing today. Um, they're nutritious and they're readily available and they can be eaten as is. And if they came across a species which was psychedelic, and some of the psychedelic species can be very large and look just like an edible mushroom, uh, they would experience at lower dosages certain uh, characteristics that were very, very cohesive with a positive uh, evolutionary uh, effect. So eyesight is slightly increased, um, awareness, sort of the focus, ability to focus is slightly increased. Um, these are on the lower doses. He says that over time, if you increase the dose and took more and more, because that's what making you successful, eventually you'd reach some kind of uh, 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 dose that would push you over the edge, and then you'd have some kind of psychedelic experience. And this could in turn lead to a glossolalia, which is a sort of spontaneous uh, eruption of language sounding noises. Um, and in turn, obviously, uh, an increased development of the cerebral cortex. So this was his theory, and I certainly believe it to be possible. I think that it's a theory that could explain also alternative uh, humans and alternative timelines, as it were, sort of uh, different species that were around as well that we don't seem to have found evidence. But in terms of the Sumerian culture, that seems to be happening 
at a different pace and a different scale to this very uh, gradual localized uh, development of human beings and the the really rapid advancement in all of their systems and their understanding of the cosmos and of their place um, is really quite unimaginable when you consider what we think uh, is their origin, which is basically human beings who were living in caves, lighting fires and shaping flints to be knives, uh, you know, would suddenly come up with a mathematical system based on 12 or, you know, the astronomy observations of the uh, cycles of the Earth. Um, you know, all of these very, very impossibly long um, observations of astronomy that came far too quickly. And so, in the last few minutes that I have, um, I would like to talk, take a moment, to talk a little bit about the critics of Zachariah Sitchin, because obviously I am very much aware and have uh, read uh, enough about what they're saying, and they're, they're, it's all very, very similar. Um, it seems to be, because if you, if you research uh, on Wikipedia, if you look up Sitchin, I'm pretty sure they use the word uh, pseudoscientist at some point. Um, and obviously they portray him as a very uh, wacky individual with his ideas, which is understandable. But I would like to say that of all of the critics that I've uh, read, um, there seems to be a common theme, which is that Sitchin misinterpreted the tablets. And so it all lays down, as is uh, a lot of the times, um, it all comes down to language and specifically translation. Two competing translations, um, and how do you know which one is right? And if you're anything like me and if you've read translations of languages you know, um, there's no such thing as a perfect translation. A translation of a language, especially an ancient language, would need the perception of that culture and you can't really have that in a different time so whenever we're dealing with translations of the past whether it's the bible or whether it's any other religious or mystical mythical text um, we're going to come across this problem and so in my mind when i have to decide between i would look to the people who have um as it were more of the encompassing worldview, more of the story around that society. And if you look at the Semitic languages, I am uh, <laughs> I have the privilege, as it were, of knowing uh, Hebrew as a mother tongue, um, they're obviously connected. They obviously share a common ancestor and the meanings have traveled down. And as the meanings travel down, they've been distorted but the fact of the matter is we could, I can read the Bible and understand more or less what it says, except for a few words. And so if I study Aramaic and Akkadian, I would understand much more these words and understand the roots. And this is exactly what Sitchin does. So Sitchin has studied all of these ancient uh, Semitic languages and has come up with a translation which is different from the other uh, translators. And so, as surprising as it may be, the majority of people who have less 
uh, knowledge than him who have less uh, experience with Semitic languages um, seem to be gaining the upper hand, seem to have the deciding vote as opposed to the one uh, quote-unquote specialist. And so I just want to say that because I do want to be uh, fair in saying that obviously these theories are not something that's accepted by all. But I do sense always that the first and foremost reason why these theories aren't accepted is because they are so far removed from what we have been told, from what we become accustomed to and uh, what we believe in. And so because of this, um, it's very important for me to ask <laughs> that as, as much as possible, you can leave, uh, keep an open mind to the ideas that I'll be talking about next week, because although they might be, you know, uh, hard to accept and very different from what we've been told, um, if they are true, and I'm not saying that they are absolutely, but if they are true, they are instrumental to us understanding where we are in the cosmos and where we are uh, on this planet and to understanding really who we are and where we came from. And so I have, I think, two more minutes. I want to see. Oh, hi, Dr. Who fan. Welcome. Oh, yes. Well, I, I uh, upload a, uh, a recording on Fridays. So if you'd like to catch it later. Um, okay, with a few last minutes um, that I have, if I'm uh, on time here, <laughs> I'd like to read you a quote. And this is a quote from an Egyptian priest who is speaking to a Greek uh, scholar named Solon. And he, I, I, we're going to talk about this in future episodes. But for now, I just really fell in love with this quote. And so I'd like to read it to you. He says... You have no antiquity of history and no history of antiquity. And I really like that because history and antiquity, I think in English, they seem to have uh, rather similar uh, definitions, but we can sort of understand the difference. And so when I think of that quote, it really does seem to suit uh, where humanity is, where we don't seem to remember where we came from. Oh, I'm afraid that's all I have the time I have for today. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. I hope to see you all next week. And uh, yeah, have a great night. Bye. Bye.